Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Constructive Liberty Podcast. Today, I have a special guest on the show. I'm talking with Jack Allwile and we are discussing house hacking. This is super cool. It's a great interview. I really think you'll enjoy it. We're talking about house hacking, some unconventional methods of financing your real estate, and creating a bigger money cushion to pursue passion projects. I think you'll like this episode, so listen in. Maybe you don't even know what house hacking is, but listen in. I think you'll learn a bit about real estate, how to get into it. Maybe if you've got low credit or maybe even bad credit, no credit, he's got some methods of financing real estate that you might want to look into. So check out the episode. Let me know what you think. This is a topic that I've been interested in in the past, and I've talked to some friends about it who were building a house, and I'm like, dude, you got to go the house hacking route. But he's like, I don't even know what house hacking is. So I was super excited when Jack sent his his, uh, interview request to me, and we're going to talk about house hacking, what it is, how you can get into it. Basically, this is a way to create a bigger money cushion so that you can pursue passion projects. That's Jack's own words. He says he's an actuary by trade and he started house hacking in 2017 and expanded to acquire 13 rental units as of now. So with that, Jack, welcome to the Constructive Liberty Podcast. Ken, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. I was super excited when I saw your application come through to talk about house hacking because I've heard of it. I know a little bit about it, but I've always wanted to know more. So give us a little background on who is Jack and how you came to get into house hacking. Sure. Absolutely. So I'm Jack Allwile. Grew up in a very small town in Michigan, about 100 miles north of Detroit. I started working as an actuary in 2013 and moved down to Charlotte in 2015 for another actuary job. And hang on just a second. I've heard of actuary. Tell me what an actuary is. I I can't let that one go without talking a little about that. They are, I would say specialists in risk management. Oftentimes they work for insurance companies. I oftentimes explain it as glorified budgeters. So we're making sure mm-hmm. there's enough money in reserves to pay out the future claims. And for an, a, life, a life insurance company, that there's a lot of risk involved because you have different people living different lengths and there's ways to estimate those lengths. And then those cash flows in the future need to be discounted to the present in, in a fashion to create what we call a reserve. Right. So reserve is just like the present value of money going out minus the present value of the money coming in. And the money coming in would be premiums and the money going out would be like death benefits or annuity mm-hmm. benefits. I mean, this could be applied to a lot of different things like credit card companies. Um, I, I've seen like Uber and Tesla have been trying to get actuaries now, um, but it's... It, 
right now, my job, I, I work as a valuation actuary and we're basically glorified budgeters. We're gotcha. trying to, to put an amount on what the insurance company should be holding for a specific block of business. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Glorified personal, I mean, glorified finance management to make sure you don't run a deficit in the future. That, that yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. So you're still working as an actuary and you've moved from Michigan down to North Carolina at this point. Go start, start from there again. I, I jumped, I think that was where yeah. I jumped in and interrupted yeah. you to go off okay. on the actuary trail. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so 2015, I moved down South, 2016, I unfortunately lost my job. Mm. Um, and that is when, and, and luckily at the time I had saved up a lot of money and I, I had kind of a part-time job. I was working for this, not really working, but I, there, there's a pro, a nonprofit organization where they gave subsidized housing. And then in return, the people living in the housing would throw events for young professionals. Okay. So I basically, I think my rent was like 450 or 500. I mean, originally when I moved to Charlotte, my, my housing expense was like 12 or $1,300. And mm-hmm. it was just, yeah, I just, I was studying so much for these actuarial exams. Didn't really feel like I was getting to enjoy it. So I found other housing, but anyway, back to 2016, when I lose my job, I decided to take a trip to Europe. Um, I also realized that as soon as I got another job, I wanted to buy a house and rent out the rooms to make my life a little more robust and to create a foundation where I wasn't so susceptible to me losing a job again. Mm-hmm. And on, on this trip to Europe, well, I, I actually met my now wife in Vienna, but, oh, wow. but what, but what really, um, well, other than meeting my wife, what struck, <laughs> what struck me to my core was when I went to visit the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland. Um, and that, that's where the Nazis held, you know, a lot of the people during the war. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had a lot of questions and I, I was never a big reader growing up, but when I went to Auschwitz, I had like so many questions. I was just like very curious and I really wanted to learn more about world war two. And that's when I started reading a lot. And a lot of this reading morphed into books about soccer, which which I love. And then it also trickled into real estate a little bit. And my brother introduced me to the Bigger Pockets podcast, which I have gotten some great information on. And yeah, so I was well, he introduced me to Bigger Pockets and okay. kind of just podcasts in general. The only podcast I had been listening to up to that point, I think was a soccer podcast. Gotcha. And he, he kind of introduced me to, um, what's it called? How, how I built this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was kind of cool where they interview entrepreneurs or people that have started things up. And, um, that, that was kind of cool and got me really in love with podcasts. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, different people's journey through learning things and how, somebody who seeks out information in today's age often ends up going through podcasts because it's such an accessible form of, of media to, to be able to learn from, you know, who's got time to sit down and watch hours and hours of videos or read hundreds of books. I love to read, but I listen to hundreds of hours more podcasts than I do reading books. So is that going through those podcasts? Is that what, took you down the house hacking route or, or what was um, it that got you into well, 
that specifically? Um, well, I, I'd kind of always had the idea of real estate. My parents did have a few rentals when we were growing up. And I think it would have been in 20, yeah, in 2016, my brother actually as a PhD student at Vanderbilt started house hacking in Nashville. And I guess that's kind of when I said, okay, yeah, th- this seems like a really good idea. And I, I should do this as soon as I can get underwritten for a loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the podcast really opened me up to just different ideas. And in 2018, I was able to get three properties through seller financing. And a lot of, the, a lot of that um, framework I got from listening to Bigger Pockets. Gotcha. And th- th- there was a guy that was interviewed that would just cold call um, like these people that he had in some notebook. Every, <laughs> like once a month, he would just call, are you ready to sell? Are you ready to sell? And then, um, so, and, and when I, in 2018, when I was looking at traditional financing, no one would give me a loan. And luckily I listened to these podcasts where, so I knew about at least knew to ask if they were willing to sell or finance some of these properties. And sure enough, they did. So I, I probably a couple of years prior, I would have just given up or not mm. even thought to pursue it. Right. Talk a little about the process of seller financing. Well, even before we go into that, uh, maybe our listeners don't even know what house hacking is. Give us a definition of that. And then we'll talk a little about the process of of the seller financing thing. Because a lot of people that I talk to want to get into real estate, but they're like, I can't get the money. I don't have a, a any credit score, much less a good enough credit score to get a loan. So I think that sounds like it could be a route for a lot of people to go. But tell us first, what is house hacking? Sure. So I would describe house hacking as using your primary residence to offset your living expense. So most people, I mean, I've heard people recently call into the Dave Ramsey show. They say, you know, inflation's killing them. They're spending more than 50% of their take-home pay on their apartment. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it, it, it's kind of suffocating. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think most people spend probably, I would guess 30 to 40% on the last surveys I've sent, but, um, but in a house hack, ideally you would greatly reduce your living expense. And in, in a very favorable scenario, you would, act, you could actually make money by renting out the rooms in your home. Gotcha. So um, essentially you, you're just taking the extra, is it bedrooms like living quarters or would there be other, other things you could rent your house out for as well? I mean, I I've seen people like divide their rooms and like rent out like just a half. <laughs> that, that seems a bit extreme to me. I, I, I uh, <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, for my house hack that I acquired in 2017, I, I did use traditional financing. So I did go through a normal bank for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a primary residence, you don't normally need as much money down. Um, and if you're renting it out, you would have that extra rent to offset some, like if, if you put less than 20% down, you need the private mortgage insurance. But if you're going to have renters paying you rent, sometimes it might make sense to, you know, just do the deal and get into the property mm-hmm. and th- they'll pay your private mortgage insurance for you. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Um, and, and you can often get in as little as three and a half percent down. I think some of those uh, veteran programs, you can 0% down, I think. Um, wow. But I, I, I ended up putting 5% down on that first uh, 
first house hack. Yeah. What, what about, you know, some of your other properties you talked about acquiring through the seller financing, what is that process like? And I mean, is that something that anybody can do or, or is there certain requirements to even get into that? Um, so I, I think I, I also do not have great credit. And in 20, I, I had a unfortunate medical expense in 2017 that I was trying to dispute and uh, have gotten it off one of the credit bureau reports, but not the other two. So I'm still yeah. still trying to get, I mean, it, and it's on for like seven years. So, wow. and th- that might've gone into me being denied by some of those traditional banks, but s- seller financing is basically when the former owner or the person selling it is actually financing the property. So if I approached a homeowner and I asked them basically, would you want to be my bank? I will give you, you know, maybe 10 or 20% down and my payments with interest. And I'll even pay you a little more interest. I will make those payments to you. If I default, if I stop paying, you can take the home back over just like a bank normally would. And that's kind of what seller financing is. And the, the interest rate on the five units or the three properties I acquired in Michigan those were seller financed. I put actually a third down and um, I gave them, I think I was paying 6% to them. So a pretty high interest rate compared yeah. to what a normal rate would be at that time. For a property like that, does that have to be a property that is paid off or if they still owe money on it, could they still do the owner financing? Um, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure how that would work. The, these owners, I've, and, and the cool thing about this, how, how I actually found this couple was it was through another bigger pockets episode ah. where that, that guy's cold calling. And I, I was cold calling property managers and asking if any of their clients needed to offload for any reason. And oh, sure enough, yeah. this, this couple, um, that was investing in Michigan out of Washington state was going through a divorce and they, they had paid off these properties. Um, so, so they were able to help me out here and I, I guess I helped them out. Yeah. I've got a question here from YouTube. So what's your thoughts on hacking by renting out a room on Airbnb? So that's, that's fun. I, I looked into Airbnb for a little bit. The the thing I was having issues, I, I guess if you lived in the house, it, it could be done and uh, it, it might run smoothly. When I was looking to acquiring some properties just to do Airbnb, at least in Charlotte, and I'll say I, I haven't looked into this recently, but the issue I was coming across was finding um, cleaning services with flexible hours. Mm-hmm. It, it, it almost seemed to me you needed to have multiple units to kind of have like a cleaning crew together that you could have on a schedule. Gotcha. Um, because it, it just didn't seem like their their hours were flexible enough to accommodate what I would have needed. Yeah. Um, most, most cleaning companies, it, it seems my wife runs a cleaning business as well. Uh, and it, it's nice to have that set structure because a lot of times with the Airbnbs, it's, you know, I need it done tomorrow or I'll have to, it's, it's very, very interesting and flexible schedule. The lady that asked the question says she's a cleaning lady. So that wouldn't be an issue for her. <laughs> that <laughs> that sounds perfect. I mean, I, I would say there's kind of a scale, like um, on the passive side to the active side, Airbnbs 
so, somewhere in the middle. And um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I would guess it's it's probably more profitable if you got a rhythm and got right. the, the cleaning aspect down and managed, uh, but it, it would probably take up more time. So I mm-hmm. guess that's the downside. Yeah. How, what's it like finding, uh, I don't know, do you call them roommates or house hacking dormies or what's it like finding people to, to rent a space from you? Is there a, Mm -hmm. is there an app for that? I mean, it seems like there's an app for everything these days. Yeah. So I, I was using what's called my smart move. Um, it's a website. Um, and basically you just get the prospective tenant or roommates email address. You, You put it into my smart move. They will send, them a screening questionnaire will there they will then put in like their vital information like their social and all that and then the person running the screening so i would receive a credit and background check of their information and so i i was going through that in the house hack and i think it makes it makes everybody feel more safe mm-hmm. knowing that you're screening all of the people because i was running out individual rooms and these people didn't necessarily know each other before and so i think it made everyone feel safer and, and i i also ended up installing individual locks on the doors gotcha just for a little bit more added security and privacy yeah. i i can i can see how that would definitely be a benefit if you i would be one who wouldn't want to rent a room from somebody and not have any form of security mm-hmm. on that to, to lock that space off. So I can see how that's definitely an added draw there to, to put that in. Well, tell me about some horror stories. Have you, have you run into anything like that? Um, say, uh, any, I, I, I know there's a lot of benefits, you know, the having somebody else pay for your home, that sort of thing. There's gotta be some downsides to it as well. There's absolutely, absolutely some very down moments. Um, so one thing, I, I bought this house um, kind of with the mindset of what would I want if I was a renter? And a lot of the places in Charlotte have pools. So I, I actually kind of, I, I wasn't actively seeking a place with a pool, but I thought mm-hmm. if it had a pool, that would probably be a plus and a selling point. Now, when I got the house, it was about to go into foreclosure and the pool was jet black. Now mm. I, I could have just found a cleaning service, but I was kind of stubborn and I tried to do a lot of the cleaning myself. <laughs> so I remember spending just like hours on this pool mm. uh, oftentimes. And on the weekly, I would, I, I didn't trust myself with the chemicals. So I would take a water sample into the store. They would basically tell me what I need. Um, so there was a lot of pool maintenance uh, learning initially. And then I guess my worst horror story I would say was, um, back in August, I had a roommate. She was supposed to be out. I I think by the end of August, but she ended up staying a couple days into September. Gotcha. And we had always split the utility bill, uh, evenly across the roommates. And unfortunately, a pipe burst from the street to the house and it and it spiked the the water bill spiked. I think it was in September, but because she had stayed in a couple extra days, she had basically been exposed to that September bill. Right. she, She was not happy when I sent her her split for for the utilities. And she actually ended up taking me to a mediation 
Oh no. Um, and I, I, I'd never been in one of those. Um, she was quite, uh, quite upset about it and kind of wanted me to pay her. Um, so I, and I didn't ask the tenants to pay any of the repair work that, that was right. on me. It was, re- it was really just the, the high water bill that was under question. And so that was very stressful. Um, we, we got it sorted out, but de- definitely a stressful time for me. Yeah, no doubt. I, I can imagine, you know, even from her side being hit with that unexpectedly, but your side too, that's, if you have that agreement in place, then it's hard to know how to deal with situations like that. Yeah. She was, she was really stressed out too. At the time her mom was in the hospital. It just felt like there was a bunch of bad things happening to her. So, I I mean, I felt really bad, but, um, and we ended up just kind of, she, she didn't end up paying me all of what, the split would have been and we just, mm-hmm. we just called it even and yeah, hard ways. Yeah. yeah. What, what about some of the agreements like that? I know with a long-term rental, it can be super difficult to, to evict a uh, problem tenant at times. What's it like with house hacking and splitting those, uh, the utilities? Do you have an agreement in place and how hard is that to enforce if, if a disagreement comes up? Um, so I, I gave access to, I, I had an Excel spreadsheet where I kept records of the utilities by month. So mm-hmm. they could kind of see how there's some seasonality, you know, the electric and the water spike in the summer when we're using the pool, but then the, the gas spikes in the winter when we're using the heat. Yeah. So just to get them comfortable with how, like the seasonality of the utilities, um, so they, they had access to that. They could question me on anything. And I, I w- was always just splitting it by the number of days they lived in the house. Gotcha. But luckily, we really didn't have any disagreements outside of that one high water bill um, that led to a mediation. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of evictions, luckily, I and I'd like to think this was because of all the screening on the front end. I never we never really had a, a, a super problem with like an eviction. In right. my house act. Now in, in Michigan, I have had gone through some evictions with people, but my I, I pay a property manager now gotcha. to manage those and he takes care of that. Um but in terms of the house hack, I I luckily have not had any problems um yeah. with that. Yeah, I imagine the uh the screening on the front end probably does play a huge part into that because you can you can kind of gauge how people are you know, just by having a small conversation with them. And it's hard to, hard to sometimes make that judgment, I'm sure, because you don't want to judge people on, on first impressions. But on the other hand, you are inviting somebody into your home. So you want to have a very strict process for that, I'm sure. Talk a little about, you mentioned, um, you acquired those properties in Michigan and, and you've, you've worked way up to, I think, is it 13 properties now? Thirteen units now. There's thirteen um, units. Okay. Yeah. So there's four properties in Michigan. There's um, two single families, a three unit, and then I we got a seven unit last summer. Okay. And then in South Carolina, we actually have a short term rental um, at Myrtle Beach, which oh, is gotcha. quite cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. With are these like full time rental units? Or, yep. or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, okay. the the ones in Michigan. I think, well, I have some renters on month to month now, but most of them are on year leases or in some cases they're on two year leases. 
Now, I I locked them in on two year just to reduce the turnover. But at the same time, I was kind of I kind of started thinking, well, if the expenses start, if, if inflation really does start to ramp up and I can't change the rent, that could mm-hmm. potentially become a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that was kind of the thinking to diversify a little bit into a short term rental in Myrtle Beach because because that there they're only staying a couple nights at a time and it's whatever the market can take they'll they'll get in rent so yeah for sure was the the long-term rental was that kind of a, a thing that grew out of the short term realizing like the the house hacking realizing the the potential return on real estate is that what was the progression there for you? Absolutely. So I, I started out with the house hack and I, I'd say one of the best things about house hack is it's kind of like landlording 101. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're getting like, you know, you have your training wheels, you, you kind of get <laughs> um, pushed to the fire. You got to learn some things, how you know, how to screen a tenant, get a lease, you know, just walking a tenant through a property and Right then, and then I start. I started listening to Bigger Pockets and real estate podcasts um, while I was house hacking, and I, I became very interested. And I, I still remember um, that they call, there's a concept they call Burr, the Burr strategy. It stands for um, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And when I hmm. heard that concept, I, I'll never forget it. I was standing in my kitchen. I was like, this is like the ticket. This is what the really wealthy people must do. They they buy a buy like a fixer upper. They they make it better. They they rent it out and then they refinance to pull a lot of their cash out and then they can go do it again. Mm-hmm. And and while I, I haven't really gotten to that point where I've really pulled cash out of any property to to roll it, I I started thinking like that's that's really long term where I want to yeah. be. Yeah. Have you, you said you haven't pulled any cash out. Have you, have you used that to finance the next property? I I will say the, the first three Michigan properties, while I didn't pull cash out, I actually, actually very aggressively paid them off. Gotcha. Um, So when I was going to look at the seven unit and some of these bigger places, now those traditional banks would look at those favorably. It's like, okay, he's been responsible with these three properties. He's got them paid off. And God forbid, if he were to default on ours, we could, you know, look at these other properties as yeah. kind of collateral. Right. That um, makes perfect sense. Yeah. What's the process that you go through? You know, you come across these these properties, you've done your cold calls and all of that. When you actually have the opportunity to go buy the property. Is there a process that you have for analyzing and acquiring that property? Um, I, I, I love Excel. Um, I, I wouldn't say I have like strict guidelines in terms of like, what does my cash on cash return need to be? Or, um, you know, does this seem like expensive or cheap? I, I kind of like for the seven unit, for example, um, when I acquired it, it was getting about $3,100 in rent. And just by going to the property, the, the, the property was very nice. It was all rented. Some of those people had been there a really long time. Um, and just lo- looking around also at Craigslist at what other rents were, 
the, the rent seemed very low at this place. So, and this seven unit, I uh, purchased for $259,000 and it was getting 3,100 in rents, but I thought actually it should be getting around 3,800 and oddly enough, we're now actually getting 4,100 and now wow. it's, and, and a lot of those people were about to come up on their leases. So we did some shifting. And so at that price point, I could have seen someone paying a hundred grand more than what I paid. Mm. So it's kind of just like looking at what the rents are versus the market prices. And um, I, I mean, I try to look at a lot of properties just to get a feel for if you were, and they call them uh, like a cap rate. Um, it's, it's basically the percentage you could um, count to get on if you paid all cash. So if you paid a hundred grand for a property and after all the rents and expenses, you're left with five thousand. Okay, that's five percent. Um, and if you you paid a hundred grand for that, that would be called a five cap. Gotcha. So um, it's kind of just getting a feel for what the, the the rates are in a particular area. In the nicer areas, people will pay more, and oftentimes that cap rate is lower. Gotcha. So, so, so you might pay a hundred grand just to get $2,000 after everything in a super nice area where if you go to some of these places in the Midwest, you might get five, six, 7%. Wow. Um, wow. so it's just, yeah. What, what is the, the minimum return that you'll look at on, on a place like that? Cause I was doing some looking into, we have some commercial properties come up for sale locally for it doesn't seem like a, a high price. And it's there's, uh, I think, five units in this one property that we're looking at. But going said, they would, own, they would be just under a 1% on the, on the rental or on the, and that's even before any expenses, monthly expenses or anything like that come out, which 1% from my research is kind of the make or break from what I've seen other people go by. Do, do you what, mean the, what's your like, thoughts on that? I, I, I think you might, are, are you talking about like the 1% rule, that general guideline? Yeah. Of like, yeah. So, so, so that, that concept is like, if you take the purchase price, so let, let's say we had a hundred thousand dollar home, mm-hmm. the, the 1% rule will suggest if we can get at least a thousand dollars per month in rents, that place is probably likely to cash flow, but it's kind of just a guideline. Gotcha. I, I find it helpful to actually ask um, if the property managers will, if the sellers will allow it to release like the, the rent rolls where you actually see the rents coming in and the expenses going out just to check and to double check, like what the insurance is and um, get the utility information, property taxes, um, I mean, overall, like on an annual basis, I would, I would like a, like a 10% cash on cash, but I, I, I'm not super strict on my guidelines. I, I, I think I'm going more off of like gut and just comparing mm-hmm. what the, um, like the current r- rents are and ha- like where the people are on their leases and what I think the market should be at. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. And, and how, how quickly those tenants might turn over and you'd be able to raise them. Um, 
So I don't know if that answers your, and, and I also, I also look um, oftentimes at a long time horizon and I, I th- there, there's like this uh, it's called an internal rate of return. And I, I, I try to look at that also, um, but n- nothing strict. Yeah. I don't have like strict requirements. I guess. <laughs> there's there's so many different yeah. methods of of going about any anything you know, especially real estate. Everybody has their own different method of looking at things. So it's there. There doesn't seem like there can be a hard and fast rule on that. What would you say to someone who is looking to buy their first property? What would be some good things to consider? Long term rental, short term rental, house hacking. Where would you suggest somebody start? Um, well, I, th- I think a good place to start is trying trying to get a feel for the rent ratios where, wherever you're trying to look just just by comparing the price of purchase versus what those rents you at least you think would be, mm. and trying to get a feel for those ratios between the different cities because the the rent ratios in like the Midwest are often much higher than like now in Charlotte. Um, like it's, it's becoming so expensive. Like, I don't even know if a house hack would make sense right now in a lot of these areas. Um, gotcha. so it's kind of just trying to get a feel for, you know, what, what, what the purchase price is and what you think you could get in rents. Um, and, and oftentimes that could be just having, you know, Zillow open on one tab and then Craigslist open on another tab and just go, you know, if, if you wanted like a two bedroom, like, look at the two bedrooms on Zillow and then on the other tab on Craigslist, go look at what one bedrooms are renting for. If you want to live in one and then rent out the other and a similar property so you can get some comparables. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like that idea. I Right now we are currently building a house while living in a camper. So there's no uh-huh. room to, for us to rent out, but <laughs> Uh, it's it's an interesting process for sure. I mean, I've I've seen even people. I mean, th- this is kind of sidebar, but yeah. I've seen people even rent out their backyards as like um, camping grounds. Hmm. Like they set up like a tent. Yeah, back there. I, 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 the the website's escaping me, but but there's a website where you can just like rent out like plots of land on your property and like hmm. pitch a tent, give them some, <laughs> give them some uh, like. Uh, logs and some marshmallows and yeah. have have at it. <laughs> yeah, so it'd be similar to like Airbnb or something yeah. like that for camping. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen that. That's that's it's uh, an idea because I've I've definitely got the property here that I could do that on, and I'm I am working on getting up a couple of camper spots set up. But it's everything is a is a process, and yeah. you have to go through it to get there. What uh, what other kinds of methods of financing or any other creative things you've done aside from the, the owning on some of your properties? Um, so the, yeah. So the first three were seller finance. The seven unit was more traditional bank route. The short term rental, I actually pitched to my uncle and my uncle financed that. So gotcha. k- kind of tapping into your current network. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you kind of need to be organized and kind of show, show them the numbers so, so they can digest and show them why you believe it's a good deal because it, it's um, you, you wouldn't want to uh, 
it, it becomes iffy when you're dealing with family, I guess you don't, you don't want to create conflict down the road. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so it's, yeah, but, um, I guess tapping into your current network, uh, I mean, my brother and I have kind of been lending each other some money sometimes, um, like, like for those three units in Michigan, I, my brother actually lent me a little bit of money and then another friend lent gotcha. me money. Um, so it's like, um, I guess just personal, uh, like money raising from yeah, friends. Yeah. And, um, you, I mean, you could partner with people. I, I haven't really done this. Um, I, I could see if you had too many partners, there might be too many like, uh, heads in the room talking and everyone wants control and everyone's got a different idea. So the control part might be hard and how to manage the property. But in terms of just getting into a deal, if it, it would be helpful if you had partners that you trusted and liked working with and it, you could raise money together and then mm-hmm. do a deal because um, doing even like a third of a deal might be better than doing no deal at all. So, right. Yeah. And l- at least a little bit of return is yeah. is better than no return. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're definitely spot on there. What kind of books should people look into if they're, if they're like to read like you and I both do, and, and they're interested in learning more about house hacking and real estate and, and getting into some of those things, what book recommendations do you have? Um, well, cl- cl- just like a business classic is like Cashflow Quadrant and Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, I would say. I mean, a book back to like the private capital that there's a book by, I think it's um, Anson Young, Raising Private Capital, that I really enjoyed. Um, and I think there's, there's a book that I want to read that's specifically about the that BRRRR strategy, the Burr mm-hmm. strategy. Um, by David Green, and he, those are bigger pockets guys. So um, th- those are good uh, good books. And I'm trying to think of other ones, um, but th- th- those are the ones that come to mind. And that Burr strategy is one I haven't read but want to read. Yeah, for sure. Now, if I understand right, you wrote a book yourself. Is that right? I, I did. I've written a couple. Um, one is geared towards. The actuarial exams, it's basically a a journal that one can use as a supplement to their normal study material. And it's called, it's called 15 weeks to pass an actuarial exam. Um, And I I found journaling to be very helpful. I had a lot of struggles with the exams that there's eight of them that I went through and the sixth and seventh, I failed three times a piece. Oh, wow. And they're only offered every six months. You really got to make a count when you can get a chance to take them. So, so when um, you failed, you had to wait six months to take it again. I did. Wow. So it was a multi-year process going through that then. Very. I started, I took my first actuarial exam in 2010 and I passed my last one in 2020. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And then that's quite the process. Yeah. And then the other book and this, 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 this is related to house hacking because it, it frees up money to pursue passion projects. And that, mm. that's kind of really what I, I like people to hear. And what, one of my passions is soccer. And if when I did the house hack, um, I basically eliminated my living expense. Right. And I was able to pursue these other passion projects. And one of the things was um, I, I kind of took my actual background and tried to construct a model to help betting on the World Cup. Gotcha. And that book, <laughs> that that process turned into the book 
the post analysis called Make Better Bets. Okay. Um. So so that's that's the the start of that book. But but it's it's yeah it, it did really start with the house hack. Yeah. In your in your application, you mentioned the story in the book. You want to go into that? Uh, you said uh, a girl that you mentioned in the book. So yeah. So um. Back back to the Europe trip, and I, I do some flashbacks in that book of my trip to Europe after getting fired, and mm-hmm. I luckily met my now wife Elena in Vienna, and uh, I had a, a chapter about that in, in the oh, book. That's cool. um, yeah, so yeah, she's uh, we're going through the green card process right now, but she moved here full time uh, May last year. Oh, that and is I, awesome. Yeah, so we did long distance for like four years, but oh, uh, wow finally made it work. So <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. Jack, and, I, re- I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Is there anything else you would like to say before we go? I would just like to say, um, I mean, I, I found it so beneficial to pursue passion projects just for the sake of it. Like, don't worry about any reward. Just, just do things you want to do and tr- try to learn and uh, good things will come out of them. Yeah. Awesome. Jack, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. See, I told you that'd be a good episode. It was really informational, really good. I really enjoyed having that chat with Jack. Uh, Definitely go check out the books that he talked about, 15 Weeks to Pass an Actuarial Exam. I didn't even know what an actuary was, so I, I learned something. Aside from the house hacking and real estate financing thing, I learned what an actuary does. Uh, go check out that book. Also, the book Make Better Bets. He wrote both of those books. They're available on Amazon. I'll have the link in the show notes below. You can find out more about Jack and follow him at firedtofire.com. That link is also in the show notes. And check out the Brothers on Books podcast at brothersonbooks.com. Do good work. <laughs>